Good morning, Elam Chapel, and any guests who have found your way to our website. This is our third Sunday of coming to church by means of a computer or a smartphone instead of driving to the building. But haven't we often said that Elam Chapel is the people much more than the building? It's true. We're meeting this way to protect ourselves from the danger of a virus that has spread around the world with alarming speed and frightening consequences, including more than 17,000 deaths so far. So here we are, in your home, and I in mine, thanks to a virus known as the novel coronavirus. Remember just five weeks ago when the virus was only a danger to persons living on the other side of the world? And we were going about our lives as usual? Traveling, meeting friends for coffee, going to church in a building? We have a crisis, and its name is COVID-19. As a result, our churches are shut on Sunday, and many businesses are closed, and some may not reopen. We're avoiding being physically present together in groups, and when we meet, it's by means of the internet, or sometimes old-fashioned telephones. The heart of our city feels empty during the middle of the week. This feels new, but it isn't really. In 1527, the bubonic plague was sweeping across Europe. As plagues go, this was far worse than what we're experiencing right now. Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend who asked if a Christian should run from the plague. Luther responded, encouraging some of the exact behaviors that we're practicing right now in Winnipeg 500 years later. Luther said, You ought to think this way. Very well. By God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly awful. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to become, in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. The science and technology have improved our lives enormously since Luther wrote this letter. However, once again, we are face-to-face -face with a crisis. You probably heard that the Chinese symbol for crisis was created by combining two other symbols, that for danger and opportunity. Many have used this in speeches, including a U.S. President, JFK, a Vice President, Al Gore, and a U.S. Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. The opportunity given by a crisis is that of making choices. In a crisis, we are like people standing at a crossroad. Now, you can't stand in the middle of the crossroad forever. You've got to choose a road and choose a direction. Luther outlined two choices. Avoid places and persons where your presence is not needed, or go help a neighbor in distress. It can be a hard choice to make. We can respond to Luther's comments by asking ourselves a question that will be complicated. When will I choose to remain safe, and when will I choose to go to my neighbor's aid? As we make choices, we struggle to see the long-term consequences of the choices or the changes that will result. 
We need to hear good voices, either warning us against a particular choice or encouraging us to move forward with good plans. In this present crisis, we've heard all sorts of warnings, especially related to social distancing. A few people seem to have ignored the warnings. This young man's picture appeared on Facebook last week. He has chosen to avoid and defy sound warnings. Maybe he's on spring break and doesn't want to let the virus lessen his fun. Either way, he's dangerous to himself and to others, what Luther called infecting and polluting others. I discovered in a newspaper article last week that he's not alone. Groups of people are ignoring the warnings, and Twitter has a label for them, hashtag COVIDiots. In times of crisis, we don't want to be idiots. So we look to people who can alert us to dangers and help us make good choices. In the 1930s, Winston Churchill tried repeatedly to warn England of the dangers posed by Adolf Hitler and his agenda for Europe. Sadly, his warnings fell mostly on deaf ears until the inevitable happened, and England and the rest of the world was plunged into a deadly war, unprepared. Why did they ignore Churchill's warnings? Maybe they were afraid of what they'd have to do if the warnings were in fact true and genuine. Maybe they didn't want to pay the price for preparing for a confrontation. The need for warning brings us back to our study of Old Testament prophets who were often sent to warn people in times of crisis, imploring them to change their hearts, their minds, and their behavior. In each of these studies, we've been asking three questions. Who was the prophet? How did his words, how do his words foreshadow or look forward to Jesus? And what can we take away from his message? This morning, we're going to focus on one man who spoke words of warning to people at a crossroads who needed to hear and see the danger that they were in and to seize the opportunity that was before them. His name was John, but we call him John the Baptist. A good way to describe him is that he was an Old Testament prophet at the beginning of the New Testament. He was the son of a priest, Zechariah, and his mother was Elizabeth, who was a cousin of Mary, making John a cousin of Jesus. Roughly 500 years before his birth, the prophet Isaiah spoke about John, saying, Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Bobby's going to talk about Isaiah next Sunday. Isaiah was looking forward to the time when the captives in Babylon would be released from their captivity and given the opportunity to return home to the land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived. It was a journey of roughly 3,000 kilometers through inhospitable territory, hot, dry wilderness. What they desperately needed was that the way be prepared. So the voice cries out, prepare in the wilderness the way for the Lord. They needed the Lord to lead them through the wilderness to the promised land, just as he had led them in the first exodus out of Egypt. But for many, Babylon had become comfortable. Many chose to stay in Babylon and not make the trip. For those who did, it was a hard and dangerous trip. Surely many of them lost their lives. Another prophet wrote about John. His name was Malachi. He has the last book in the Old Testament. 
Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. According to Mark's gospel, John the Baptist was the Elijah who would turn the hearts to God, and he was the voice preparing the way in the wilderness. Here are the opening words of the Gospel of Mark. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I am sending my message ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Now Mark actually quotes Malachi 3 verse 1 there. But then he goes on to say, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him quoting from Isaiah. Mark then says, This messenger was John the Baptist. Mark 4, verses 1 to 4. The other prophets we have studied look forward to Jesus, but John worked alongside Jesus and baptized him. John was also the first to publicly announce Jesus' identity. In John's Gospel, we hear the Baptist say about Jesus, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The message of John the Baptist was a message for a time of crisis. He warned people about the dangers they faced and challenged them to seize the opportunity to repent and to change their lives. Listen as I read from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 and then 7 to 18. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds ask, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their question by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. 
so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, and burn the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. What makes these words good news? They're opportunities for choices and changes that would bring God's people back to him. He used strong words in these warnings. Axes chopping down trees that were thrown into fires. Pitchfork separating wheat from chaff and the chaff, chaff burned in a fire. You might be wondering, what, what crisis confronted John's audience in that day? Well, it was Rome and the puppet government of Jewish kings. The country was under the boot heel of the Roman army, and those Jewish kings were often horrible people of the Herodian clan. One of them eventually beheaded John, and Rome within 40 years would completely destroy Jerusalem, and the population of Israel that was still alive would be dispersed in all directions. But there was another greater crisis, and like England in the 1930s, most didn't see it. The crisis John addressed, like so many prophets before him, was sin, a sin crisis. Sin is a crisis because it separates us from God, and if that separation is not dealt with, everything is finally for us lost. Everything. Separated from God, we ignore the instructions he's given to us so that we might prosper. But we humans have our own definitions of the good life, and we're determined to pursue it. But in that process, we run the danger of gaining the whole world and losing our own souls, in the words of Jesus. That is the greater danger of the crisis that they and we face. The choice we need to make is to return to God and to follow him. The good news is that if we turn to God, we will be forgiven. The Gospels make this clear. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. John was warning people that they needed to repent and turn to God. He was preparing the way in the wilderness for, the, for Jesus, our Savior, and today we have the opportunity that they did of knowing Jesus and following him through any wilderness that we must face. Turning to God is called repentance. Repentance is change. It's metanoia. The word means to have another mind or to change your mind. Repentance is a change of mind that shows up in a change of behavior. The prodigal son, in a story told by Jesus, repented. He changed his mind about his choices, and he returned to the Father. John was calling the crowds that came to hear his preaching to repent, to turn from following their own agendas, and to begin the journey of following Jesus, the Savior of the world, through the wilderness to a new promised land. It was a promise of a new exodus, but it began with repentance. Repentance is a simple concept, but it's not that easy to do. Wouldn't you agree? One can easily say, I've changed my mind, but it's difficult to actually change behavior. We know that our mind is changed when our behavior changes, 
and change in our behavior actually helps us change our minds. This seems to me to be the reason that John spoke to the crowd as he did, saying, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. The crowd asked, What should we do? Well, listen to the answers. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Don't cheat, extort, or abuse people. Be satisfied with your wages. His answers were specific to certain groups of people, those who had more than they needed, to tax collectors, to soldiers. They needed to prove to themselves that they were truly changing their minds and to do that by taking care of people who, like us, are created in God's image. If someone needed clothes and they had extra, they should share. If others were hungry and they had enough, they should be generous. Commenting on these verses, N.T. Wright described a cartoon. In the cartoon, a skeptic looks up and shouts at heaven, God, if you're up there, tell us what we should do. Back comes a voice. Feed the hungry, house the homeless, establish justice. The skeptic looks alarmed. Just testing, he says. Me too, says the voice. Our repentance, our turning toward God, is tested by our behavior, by our actions. Yes, we are in a crisis, and I think that Luther was correct in referring to this sort of thing as something that God allows. We are confronted by danger in a time of advancing virus. Mercifully, unlike older plagues, it looks like most of those whose bodies are invaded by the virus will recover. But what about businesses? What about institutions that have had to close? What about Elam Chapel? Already we've made hard choices. We chose to shut down all our meetings. We'll be closing our office this coming week and working from home. Likely there are more choices to come. Because of the new rules meant to flatten the curve of the virus, we're losing rental income, which has helped us with expenses related to using and maintaining our building. We will have to make hard choices about that if we don't have enough to pay our bills. We chose to keep making food available to those people who come regularly on Sunday morning for food, for, for something to drink, for a cup of coffee. More came the second week than the first, and the demands on our small food hamper increase. What will we do? We have no idea how long this viral crisis will last. But we are beginning to suspect that many things will not go back to the way they once were, maybe including Elam Chapel. This crisis will change many things. It will change us. That feels sad, doesn't it? I kind of like the Elam that we've known for a long time. But maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. The crisis gives us an opportunity to discover how we can change for the better, to be a better church for each other and a better church for our community. We will need to repent, to change the way we think about what we do, letting go of some of the old ways and creating and embracing new ways. We could become a more effective church by getting to know each other much better than we do now, and we can begin now. Find your church directory. Make a list of people that you don't know very well. Maybe you're not even sure who they are. 
and then give them a call or send them an email and just say, how are you? How are you doing in these difficult times? How are you coping? Give them a text. Or do something really outrageous and sit down and write them a handwritten note and put it in the mail. Canada Post hasn't shut down yet. To care for each other better and more effectively, we need to know each other better. And while we're at it, we might get to know our neighbors a little bit better. Call your neighbors up and ask them how they're doing. I think we can be confident that there are a lot of lonely people out there who would love to have a call from us. If you go to the same grocery store regularly and they're giving you service, write the manager a letter and thank them for that service. Let's be bold. Let's be bold enough to ask God to tell us what He wants us to do in this time of crisis and then courageous enough to do it. The good thing about this crisis is that we have an opportunity to turn back to God, to be more open to new ways to serve each other and to serve our community in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. If we do this, we will increasingly become the church that we need to be in order to serve our generation. The good news for us is that God is on our side and His Spirit can and will, as we open our hearts and minds to Him, guide us to the right choices and to the right changes. William Carey, a missionary to India and one of the great missionaries of the church, encouraged the church then and now to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. In this time of crisis and change, let's expect great things from God and attempt great things for Him. Let us pray. Father, we do acknowledge that this crisis has come because you've allowed it. And you've allowed it to give us this wonderful opportunity to become a better church, to become better people, to become more tuned to your will and to your plans for us. Guide us as individuals and as a church that we might bring you glory. In Christ's name, amen.